Hello there and welcome to episode 76 of this Value Through Vulnerability podcast. It's a podcast from a listening organisation dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And this week I'm really excited to bring you Neil Mularkey, who is the co-founder of the Comedy Store Players. He's a communications expert and author. And a couple of the things that I took away from this conversation, um, which I'd like to share with you up front, is one, Neil speaks to the fact that when you lose the sensor, you become all the more human. As somebody that spent many years overthinking myself, this speaks wonderfully to the fact that if we just trust ourselves to be more intuitive um, as we are innately, you know, we'll probably find that we have better conversations or a more deeply human level if we stop trying to be what we think that other person wants us to be, or indeed if we keep thinking about what we're trying to get out of that or gain out of that conversation. In addition, Neil also speaks about listening is the root of all improv or improvisation which is the key uh, comedic uh, trait that Neil specialises in. What I think so powerful here is that we are all working with improvised skills all of the time, whether it's with your spouse, a friend in the work organisation or any other uh, social situation. It doesn't matter how much you practice and prepare, it will always be in the moment in how we react based on what we're thinking about ourselves and the situation. Such a rich conversation this for me. I really believe that you'll enjoy it as well. And as always, we'd be very grateful if you could leave some feedback either via different social media channels or on your favourite podcast app with Apple iTunes being a favourite of mine. And uh, I look forward to you letting us know how this resonates with you. So enjoy the conversation with Neil Mularkey. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I'm very excited to introduce you, the listener, to Neil Mularkey, who is the founder of the Comedy Store Players, author and a communications expert, and someone who I had the pleasure to see um, operating firsthand as he led the Meaning Conference last year. So welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, well, look, as we get going, for those that may not know you, Neil, would you mind just giving a sort of two-minute lowdown? You know, how did the comedy store players maybe come into existence for you? And, you know, what are your passionate areas of work right now? Well, the comedy store players arrived in 1985. I was doing a double act with Mike Myers of Austin Powers and Wayne's World fame. We'd met in London. He wasn't famous in those days. He was selling tickets for a show I was in with the Cambridge Footlights doing sketches. Okay. And he'd come from Second City, the world I knew of vaguely, and the world of improv, because I knew about Second City because of Ghostbusters and Blues Brothers and things, I think. Not sure if the timing's right there, but I love the Blues Brothers and found out they were on Saturday Night Live and they'd come from Second City. And he told me about improv, and we were asked by Kit Hollerbuck and Dave Cohen, who talked to the comedy store, saying, well, you're not open on a Sunday, why not do improv on a Sunday? They'd done stand-up on Friday, Saturday, but we were the people forging a new idea at the comedy store. Improv was around in the UK, but wasn't nearly as well known as it became, thanks to Whose Lines It Anyway. So I've been doing that for now nearly 34 years. And for the last 20 years, I've been teaching people the skills of improv because I really felt there was something that could help us talk to each other better, listen to each other better, work better with one another if we accepted the world is improvised, so why not learn from those whose job it is to make improvised shows? And improv started with some, actually a social worker in the 1920s in Chicago, helping children 
inner city children, maybe non-native speakers, to become more confident to speak up. And it was that social worker's son who said, wow, these exercises work as a form of theater. And that led to Second City Theater Company in Chicago in 1959, from whom have sprung many famous writers, performers, directors, some of whom have gone on to Saturday Night Live and other areas that you might have heard of. And so what I love now is bringing those skills where we don't know what we're going to say, but we know we're going to go together with our fellow player. And if you've ever seen an improv show, there's, there's plenty of vulnerability there. And we actually, instead of trying to hide it, we celebrate it. The audience loves to see us not knowing. Because anybody will ask me, don't you feel scared? And what if you get it wrong or if you don't know what to say? And I say, those are the most beautiful moments because of that shared humanity between us. We happen to be the ones on stage. The audience is watching. But and in those moments, we are as one. We're celebrating our fallibility. We're wondering how we can assure the, the heights and things that we didn't know we'd, we'd say. And they come out and we co-create and the thing you said and I said where did it come from I don't know but we did it together it's I, I just love how you speak to that I, I remember I do remember seeing you actually at your uh, comedy store players a, number, um, a good few years ago probably five or six years ago nearly did absolutely I remember very viscerally the feeling of not only the humor element but of that connectivity between you on the stage exactly Arthur Smith who's a wonderful stand-up comic who says, when you come into the comedy store in the back, there's a very different feeling when watching stand-up and when the audience is watching improv. When watching stand-up, they know that the person has performed that material before and they'll do it another night. And there's a sense of, well, I like this one or I don't like this one, but there'll be another one in a minute. Let me see what I think of them. When you come into the audience at the comedy store, when it's an improv show, and indeed any other improv show elsewhere, the audience is on the edge of their seat thinking, oh, what would I say? Oh, are they going to cope? What's going to happen? Will they fall from the high wire? Yes, they have, but they've been caught by their fellow players or by our tolerance. The, the audience is much more complicit. There's that connectivity. And it's not how clever we are because people say, oh, you're so clever. I say, We're not actually. We just play the moment. We play the game. It's a different kind of intelligence, if you like. Um, People talk about intelligence, but now, um, for example, Howard Gardner from Harvard talked about nine types of intelligence. It's not just bookish maths stuff. The intelligence of the dancer, the intelligence of the footballer, the sports person. And we have a different kind of intelligence, which is the joy of not knowing, of reacting, making very simple offers to one another, bounding back and forth, re reflecting, not worrying if we make a so-called mistake. In fact, that error becomes the spine of the story. And so I do feel whether or not the etymology of humor and humanity are the same, for me they are. They have something in common. Um, I did try and say a few years ago, animals don't laugh, and I was very wrong. <laughs> but we spend so much time um, laughing together as humans, and we know that uh, it's a some, I think it was it um, Clive James said that humor is intelligence dancing and that dance of trying to connect with one another, accepting that we don't know it all, finding a way to learn, just enjoying a moment with another human being is very much about improv. That is our thing. Yes, there'll be so-called clever lines every now and again and there'll be a gag, but ultimately the audience and we are born aloft by this tide of shared 
complicity is we don't know what we're going to say for two hours we don't know what's going to happen we roughly know we'll finish at 9 30 we'll the first half will finish at half past eight we know where the games will play and we we know the comedy sorted out security and insurance and there'll be drinks at the bar and food so certain things have been organized but when we get on the stage we know the games will play but then we don't know what the audience will give us we don't know what we'll say we don't know what our colleague will say What's coming up for me really strongly, Neil, as you, as you talk about that experience, is the flow element. So actually, it really sounds to me that for that period of time, you really are just intuitively riffing off each other and just almost energetically communicating without actually always having to speak to some extent. Yes, well, that's the, the joy of it. Is, is Rule one of impro is to really listen to your partner. And that doesn't mean just listen to what she says. It's what she gives non-verbally physically facially and that or even the tone of her voice so that is you are in flow and you give yourself to the story you give yourself to your fellow player and often people say i don't know they say wasn't it great you did that thing in the laundrette and then as a performer you think i don't remember that at all i (laughs) i i was in flash not in hard drive so i don't remember what i what i did because i was in that moment and it's very hard, I think, for some people to get there, to think it doesn't matter what I, what I, what I say, uh, but I, I should be building what my, my colleague says, but whatever th- she throws at me, I throw at her, we will do something together. Um, in fact, they did some MRI scans on jazz musicians improvising on a keyboard, and they found the, the, the two bits of the brain that seemed to be um, not working if you like, were the sense of volition, which is I know what I'm going to say, and the sense of I'm worried about what other people think of me. And there's that counterintuitive sense that if I'm panicking, what will people think of me? I've lost the moment. But if you do say the first thing that comes into your head, obviously attuned to your fellow players' offer, something wonderful does come out and the people will love you for it. So that's slightly counterintuitive. When you lose the sensor, then you become all the more human. Not that you say things that are unpleasant that people wouldn't want you to say, but they accept that you might say stuff that have come from a, a part of your brain that doesn't normally articulate itself. Um, and Keith Johnson, who's one of the gurus of improv, he wrote a, go- a book called Impro, Improvisation for the Theatre. So he started a, a big movement in the UK in the 1970s and now lives in Calgary in Canada. But he said to become a good improviser, you have to step past the fear of being seen as mad, bad, or wrong. Because of course we say things that are weird. We play characters who have dubious moral fiber. Uh, We say things where it comes out, you didn't know what what you're trying to say. I often mispronounce a word or say not the word I wanted to say, or I can't think of the word and I say it anyway and it's okay. And the joy of being able to relax in the warm embrace of the forgiving audience is something that's pretty hard to give up. If you talk to any improviser, they'll say it's a really wonderful thing to be there on stage. Laughter comes, humor comes, but that sense of I'm fully human in that moment. There's there's so many questions, (laughs) reflectors coming up for me as you speak because I'm really intrigued. I'll jump. I'd like to come to your book around the seven steps shortly. But in terms of how you help 
leadership teams, organizations sort of settle into this improv way of being? You know, what are some of the, maybe if you maybe speak to some of the barriers that people work through and maybe some of the value that they gain through, through, through stepping into improv? Well, improv has sort of two elements to it. One is a practical day-to-day skill. How will I know what to say when I'm not sure what to say? How do I have better conversations? How do I deal with uncertainty? Um, So improv says, first of all, listen to your fellow player. Treat what he or she says as an offer and try and take that and add to it and give it back. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but our ethos as as a warm-up drill as well is yes and. Yes, I hear what you say and I add to that. Now, of course, in real life, you don't say the words yes and, but you're thinking, what's this, the premise this person's giving me? What's, what's the thing that I notice she's articulating that how he or she feels or thinks or perceives something? Okay, let me start from that. Let me begin to see how it feels to be in her shoes. So there's a day-to-day skill, and you can use that in networking, chatting to colleagues, chatting to clients, chatting to would-be customers. And it's a great social skill, if you like. Instead of thinking, what can I say? You're thinking, what's she said? What's the thing that I can then build? So there's that. Then there's the deeper ethos, the mindset, which is I can't control what's going to happen in the world. I don't know what the technical advances are. I don't know how the consumers are going to behave. I don't know how my fellow colleague is going to react even to what I say. Uh, He or she has motivations over and above what I might perceive or understand. So how do we deal with that? uncertainty when most organizations want us to have strategies and budgets and three-year plans and diaries and targets and those could be completely flummoxed by changes alterations unexpected events and of course we improvisers we think vulnerability and the unexpected are advantages because i find vulnerable enough to say well it's okay i don't know the answer then i'm thinking quite differently than if i'm thinking well everything i know is right it'll work out to my plan and oh it didn't eat what's wrong so there's a couple of things here eisenhower said that in the military planning is vital but your plan will die well as soon as you hit the enemy you have to change doesn't mean you didn't think ahead but you also have to be aware of what's actually occurring so there's an ethos here, and that's why I love Brene Brown, who spoke so beautifully about vulnerability. And I met her once when I hosted the International Coach Federation Conference. And she's as marvelous in real life as she is <laughs> in, her, in her TED Talks. And just brilliantly, as an aside, we spoke for an hour and a half, and she didn't want to talk about herself. She wanted to find out about Yes And and Yes But and the improv ethos of listening and treating what the other person says as an offer. So... These two things, the day-to-day skill, if you like, and the mindset, the ethos are not in opposition at all because if I'm talking to somebody, if I'm talking to the receptionist, if I'm talking to somebody's nephew, if I'm chatting with a consumer, if I'm looking what's going on in a different world from my sector, I'm open to new ideas, to offers. And I'm thinking, well, how could we do that better? Could we use some of those ways of organizing? Could we use some of those techniques? could we use some of that software or hardware in our business? So it's that openness to new ideas. It doesn't mean you've got no ideas yourself. It doesn't mean you have no plans, no targets, but you hold them lightly. And um, 
the more I've done this, because when I started it 20 years ago, I thought improv would just help people to have better conversations. If I listen to you, you listen to me, we'll have a better conversation. And of course, I discovered there were so many theories about leadership and organizations that had much in common with improv. There were pe people saying, an organization isn't like a machine, it's human beings. Human beings who have emotions and changes and aspirations that um, even as so far as we know yet, robots don't have. Um, they don't have weird lateral thoughts that jump the, the paradigm, if you like. Mm -hmm. And leadership as a skill of allowing uncertainty, but creating some sense of structure. How do you hold structure whilst allowing spontaneity? So I'm thinking now of a man called Keith Grint. So like Mint, but like Rupert Grint, professor of leadership and just great ideas about leadership can have on the one level. If there's a fire alarm, I tell you, get out. You don't discuss it. We don't need any emotional, rational thoughts beyond get out. <laughs> then there's, we need to restructure. So we need to draw an org chart or we might need to discuss this. We can think rationally and discuss it. And that's fair enough. And then there's the area he calls wicked problems. There's, there's critical problems where there's easy solution, technical problems where we can talk it out. And then there are wicked problems in organizations because people, as soon as you group them, there's groups who are in, groups who are out, opposing or different needs and desires. And improv says we can work with impartial, sorry, imperfect solutions. He calls it wicked problems that have clumsy solutions. He calls it bricolage, which is a French word meaning picking stuff up from flea markets, trying different ideas and different combinations. And of course, I came through the work in the public sector, which I do quite a lot, to his work, which is when you're in a council environment, there are residents, there are police officers, there are social workers, there are hospital administrators, there are patients. There are all sorts of different people who may have different or non-aligned points of view and wants and histories. So you can't just say, this is the answer, off you go, straight lines. Human beings, and as you wonderfully do with this podcast, what's the human side? The human side is, I'll accept compromise. As long as I feel listened to. Um, improv is continually adjusting. It's what, what, where are we now? What do we do next? An improv scene may start badly. It may start, you're on this track and then something emerges and you go to a completely different track, but you accept that you had to start with a bit of a messy few moments to find what it was really about, to uncover what the scene was telling you. So that's what I do. I, I get people to think about what if you didn't know the answer? What if you had to cope with your team expecting you to know the answer and you're saying, well, you as my team are going to help me come up with the answer? Or yes, I do know the answer on this occasion. Let me tell you. And situational leadership varies as to how much you're kind of direct, how much you coach. Sometimes you are honest and say, you know what? I didn't know, but this 21-year-old person just arrived and the insight that person gave us means we now know how to move forward. And so the hierarchy has to be like an improv team, which is there are six of us on stage. At any one point, I'm saying something. I'm sort of leading, then I step back, then you step forward, you lead. And then somebody else comes on or the audience is leading for a moment because they give a suggestion. And that shared leadership, that flat hierarchy, which improv has without even articulating it properly, 
has so much to offer organizations, large and small. How do we get that energy, that flow that the improv team has for two hours? How do we get that Monday to Friday, nine to five? Or nine to eight, probably with a lot of organizations. And my humility is improv can't help you with everything because of course you've got to have much more structure you can't be silly you can't be rude like we can't help but being so how do you bring that ethos that energy that flow into something which is more structured has to worry about budgets has to be answerable to stakeholders nevertheless if we could ally this joy of improv to an organization to a team then where couldn't we go? What are the possibilities? They're, they're immeasurable. The thing is, so many organizations have, well, we're stuck here. This is how we did it. I don't like that bunch. I'm cheesed off with this person. Of course, I couldn't do it. I'm not very good. I've never done that before. Those kind of self-limiting beliefs, mm. which, which naturally we all have, myself included. It's... Honestly, Neil, I'm absolutely puffed. It's got this wonderful, wonderful vision of, you know, improv is in essence the practice ground for vulnerability. Absolutely. And you, when you teach people who, are, who, who want to be improvisers, they have to work quite hard to lose that vulnerability. Completely counterintuitive. Of course, on, on the one hand, they're a bit nervous and their body will show they're nervous but they're trying they want to get the right answer and they uh, they speak a lot and they say things that are sensible or they say things that are funny <laughs> which <laughs> aren't in the spirit they're not that funny they're a, a joke and i remember very clearly the moment i think it was march 1998 barry st theater royal and i was teaching a bunch of people from the barry st drama society the local uh, Arts Council had given some money for this drama club to have three workshops from professionals in comedy. They had Jimmy Cricket, the stand-up comedian, um, telling jokes. Prunella Scales talking about sitcom comedy acting from Forty Towers and me doing improv. I love that theatre. It's a beautiful theatre, but um, I arrived a bit early, so I thought I'll try and learn everyone's name. And so I said, Bring them to me one at a time and I gave each of them a piece of paper in which I'd scribbled listening and I said this is the root of all success in improv listening not funny not showing off not jokes not shouting listening and we did it on the stage and there were about 20 people watching and there was this guy you had some drama students doing a level you had agricultural workers you had lawyers and there's this guy who was a lawyer and there's a game called freeze tag, which is based on physical positions. And somebody freezes and takes one of the two people out and you're on the stage. You have to pick up whatever their thread. They change the scenario. One moment you're in a, a laundrette, one moment you're then in a Ferrari or on the moon. And this bloke, you could see, didn't say what he was going to say. And he thought, no, improv says, I have to say the first thing if I'm in flow. And I'd always said, you know, Whatever you see, just to be simple, be clear. And he said something, and it was just brilliant because he didn't think about it. He didn't filter, he didn't censor. He allowed himself to be vulnerable. And it was a little bit cheeky, a little bit risque. It was a man and a woman in this scenario. And if I repeat it now, it'll, it won't work. But the idea was, 
that he couldn't help but he looked at what his body was doing he looked at the offer this young woman had given and he just said something we all we all said of course yes that's the thing to say and had it been engineered it wouldn't be a funny sketch but it was just because he said i can't help but say this i'm sorry and it was that beautiful moment of vulnerability where he said something that was completely vulnerable and it became beautiful because he had allowed himself to say it rather than thinking, what's the good thing? What's the right thing? What's the funny thing? What's the expected thing? And um, it was a moment of transformation for me where I said, this improv has more to offer humanity than simply a form of entertainment. It goes beyond comedy. It goes beyond two hours in a theater. There's something about it where if we could all just have a little bit of that improv spirit, we would feel more comfortable in ourselves and we would accept others as they are. It's honestly, it's, it's sublime now. And I, I just love the comment you made as you, as you spoke about this as well, that what, you know, what if our starting point was that you didn't know the answer. So rather than needing to come from what we've been educated on for you know, <laughs> 100 years now of getting the right answer, how about coming from a space that actually you didn't know the answer? I just think it's such a transformative space for being innovative within the workplace. It is. Um, but I have children uh, who are taught to get the right answer. No, much, no matter how much I say to them, show you're working. <laughs> um, they, they're getting there. Um, or an essay. You don't have to be right or wrong. It's good if you can understand the opposing point of view and articulate that as much as you can, and then this view, and then you may come to a conclusion, but it's, it's as much understanding what the reasons are for why somebody would come to a different point of view uh, as anything. So I, I can't blame our education. I mean, there is something about the safety of the answer is for, I've got the one, I got a mark, rather than where you say, well, four is the beginning, really. Um, and what are the possibilities had we not got to that answer? So I think it's very hard. And there's a woman called Francesca Gino who's written a book called Rebel Talent. And she's got eight elements of what it is to be a, a good leader. And one of them is serendipity, because we in the theatre, especially in improv, we know that a mistake, an error, a misstep can lead to a real creative moment. And that doesn't always happen in organizations where mistakes don't fall under the title of innovation <laughs> um, and one of her other rules apart from serendipity is learn everything then forget everything now that's a tough one because it doesn't mean all that stuff you've learned the technical stuff is wrong it just means you have to transcend it especially in these disruptive times the old certainties are are out the window mm. so even um my wife just said to me we still want to download our photographs um we've got over printing them out but we still want to put them on a computer and the younger people are saying why would you do that it's all on the cloud it's all safe um it's all it's all in the place that we understand and just things like that how things are evolving and changing and i have to step back and say, well, you know what? I, I do think this is how we do it, because um, that's what we did in the 80s. <laughs> um, but actually, it's changing. 
I can do that because I'm a ne'er-do-well comedian, but I, I, I can see people in organizations struggling because we want to give people a bit of certainty. Mm. We want to give people a bit of structure. And of course, I, I come to the world of organizations with a certain humility because I know you can't just do this every day. Improv isn't the answer to everything every moment. Um, there are times when you want to go away, sit on your own, create structure, come up with the right answer, um, write an essay, create a proposal. And the improv techniques aren't as obviously applicable, but of course they are because you improv with yourself, you improv with your unconscious, you improv with your inner critic, just as you would on stage with another person. However, um, most people want a lot of routine in their life. And I always remind people about that. You tend to stand on the same bit of the platform on your way to work. You drive the same way. And it's the same with me. When I go to the comedy store, I go the same way. Uh, we have the same starting time, the same finish time. There's plenty of structure. So how do we ally the joyous spontaneity with the comfort of structure? How do we ally the possibility of innovation with the certainty of prediction because we want to be able to know what's happening next week actually next year a bit but can we within that have moments of insight and transformation small or large that keep us together because actually when i go i do a lot of work with organizations who've um, you know we're restructuring there's this new group and we've brought these teams together and you go back two years later oh yeah that's finished Oh, that, yeah, she's gone. Oh, he, yeah, he's not here anymore. We've got a whole new thing now. <laughs> and so continually people are being asked to work within seemingly predictable, structured environments, which then they take away. So how do we, how do we hold people's desire for a bit of certainty and comfort while, with also the desires for feeling part of an ongoing change that they can have a role in this this, this is so interesting for me um, we're going to this nice little segue into your book seven steps neil because what i'm what's coming up for me is when you spoke earlier about the power of listening to your fellow player and that it's that you know the improv is more around a yes and and less of what you just spoke to around a lot of organizations mine included are much more of an either or mindset rather than a yes and and i think this listening piece is so critical if you want to move from either or to yes and yeah well that's it so um, you mentioned my book which is called seven steps to improve your people skills i was asked to write this because i'd given a few sessions at the london business forum and they said a lot of people are saying to us this is kind of what people are asking for people skills they they think they've you know, can handle the technical skills and those can be taught in certain ways. But the, the people skills are harder to, to teach, to learn, to feel you can improve in. So I'd given this talk and every signpost, every chapter begins with L. So listen is one and link. Link to what the other person said. Link to what she cares about. Link to the objectives of your customer where you can rather than to your uh, own in inner organizational objectives. So um, I wrote this and there's a bit about improv, but every chapter begins with L, as I say. So there's an, can, the first one is learn. What, what can you learn about this person? 
but also what can you learn about life and also people skills can be learned they can be practiced and in the same way one might give yourself a target for a technical skill why not try well i'll just try and improve my eye contact i'll try and get myself to meetings and i'll try and sit up straight i'll try and influence something to my uh, idea of what could be better for the organization rather than sit back and let it go in a way that i wouldn't feel comfortable with so the book i'm going to write next is called is about improv it's going to be called yes but okay. <laughs> a, a sort of tease to the the uh, the yes anders because uh, i think people sometimes get too carried away with yes and is the answer they just say yes and to everything rather than hang on what do you really mean by that because somebody i work with for an oil firm he said well we yes and all the time and nothing gets done <laughs> well yes and let's do that yes and let's do that rather than focusing and i'm saying the real improv is about listening to your fellow player. Uh, it's about being aware of your own filters and what's how you do or don't hear what other people say. Anyway, it's called Yes, But Improv Can't Be the Answer to Everything, Can It? <laughs> and then the book, the book will be pretty much what I've just talked to you about, which is the improv ethos applied to day-to-day -day organizational life. Uh, as, as an overriding ethos in the long and medium term can make us better all we do more human and more should we say more effective anyway the book is called seven steps to improve your people skills so it's what i've noticed borrowing from the theater which does notice body language which does notice how we interact and if i'm sticking to my script and you're sticking to yours it's not going to help it also is a sort of summary of, of what people have taught me in the last 20 years of running organizational workshops doing personal coaching and presentation personal impact and how do i show up as a leader so that the first one is learn how learn about the other person learn about the skills learn what you can even from mistakes of others and yourself look is use eye contact listen of course i've talked to listen and link you know show you've listened by linking to what they've said their offers sometimes and then nice chapter called let which is let the other person have a different point of view sometimes let them finish <laughs> uh let there be a pause in a conversation when suddenly a moment of pause leads to a moment of insight um lighten as as um, i've said you you and I would think that humor and humanity have a lot in common. So how much do we use humor as a collaborative, as a leadership skill? Humor, not as, hey, look, look at him in that um, office. Don't we think all the people in sales are silly or those in marketing or IT are? It's not out-group laughing. We're in this group. We don't like them. It's much more, aren't we all vulnerable? Aren't we all human? Let's share our fallibility. Um, then the last chapter is, is leave well. How do we leave a conversation? Do we leave it with a good aftertaste? How do we leave a meeting with everyone slightly cheesed off or with a sense of we've worked, we've shared, and we're going to do something that we've uh, committed to? How do I leave a job? When I leave, do I just say, well, you know, I, I, I don't like any of you, goodbye? <laughs> or do we leave with a sense of we achieved something, we shared something? Um, I bared myself to you a little bit. You saw the worst of me, perhaps, and the best of me. And I found it a truly inspiring or learning or human experience. Um, and also just presenting. How many times have you seen a bad end to a presentation? That's what I've 
found, and I'm now queuing this up because we'll leave soon, Gary. How are we going to make this end well? I don't know. <laughs> Any ideas? What, 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 well, I certainly won't sing, Neil. That's the one thing I won't do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, now. <laughs> In the improv spirit, that really would damage the podcast. But you know something? I, I think what, what's, what's really beautiful about what you've described for me, and I hope this will resonate, I'm sure, for, the, for our listeners, is just that that deep humanity, you know, our innate gift. You know, we've all got the ability to look, listen, learn, let light and link and leave, you know, regardless of how we came into this world, how we leave it. Now, all of that is already a gift within us, isn't it? It's not, we can practice it, we can get better at it, but it's not something we need to go and buy off the shelf. No, you're absolutely right. This, this is my point of the book, really. We can all do this stuff. I think we fear that, oh, what, there's this really charismatic character. She's just, she lightens up the room. Oh, there's this guy. I just know everyone listens to him. We, we can all do that. It is, it's within us and whatever life has given us, we can overcome and say, actually, yeah, I've got something to say. People should listen to me. But why don't I just learn how to make it easier for them to listen to me, for me to tell my story, for me to make my contribution, rather than leave it to those who've been lucky in life to have this born or educated with or trained within them we can all do it and we can do it in an ethical way to tell people that we have a point of view that we do want to say something and with some small tweaks increasing our ability to use these people skills we'll feel more confident in telling our own story I think it's a wonderful, wonderful way to to end, Neil. And I think you know that that what you just described, combined with the power of listening, and empathy, and, and also, actually, I'd just like to ask one other thing before we, we get your details, Neil. What I'm also sensing in this conversation is the power of presence and giving ourselves permission to slow down, rather than just staying on this hamster wheel that can feel a little <laughs> overwhelming at times. Well, of course, yes. Uh, the chapter let I mentioned, I, I cheat a bit by using lots of different meanings of it. So sometimes let yourself off the hook. Um, let yourself be. So although I talk about the people skills, sometimes on a Saturday morning you want to nip in your track pants or dirty T-shirt to get a pint of milk. <laughs> and you, you don't want to be at your best. So, uh, so just let yourself do that. You know, that's, that's allowed let yourself have some moments away from others. Um, all the more reason that when you do interact with others, you do want to make the best, then you should um, be aware that there are better ways of doing it. So ethically, you can still think, oh, I, I want to make an impression now. How do I make that happen? But presence, I think that there is that. They, we talk about mindfulness a lot, I think, now. And, and improv is certainly being in the moment. And Del Close, who was one of the founders of improv, he said, um, don't try and write the whole scene, the whole story. Just bring a brick and together we will build a cathedral. And this is very much to do with what improv is about. Am I truly in the moment? And, I, and it's not being just living for the moment of, yeah, crazy stuff now. It's about, am I truly now here with this person? And mindfulness is being used in many organizations because you called it a hamster wheel. Uh, there is a danger of we're running to keep up with something and just things like take a walk. More meetings should be outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, be aware of what's around you. And 
with all the paraphernalia of work and headphones, sometimes we aren't truly present. And it doesn't mean you suddenly become a Buddhist and want to go and live in Nepal, much as I would say that that could be a, a valid lifestyle choice. But in a busy capitalist European Western environment, how do we still maintain who we are? And rather than just be identified by our job title or our social status by others um, who tell us what we are and aren't. So yes, presence, being in the moment, it's quite hard to do that. So just stop every now and again. And also get more sleep, eight hours. I read the book, Why We Sleep, by the way. You can see I'm a bit of an evangelist for it. So uh, get more sleep, Gary. Perfect. Well, it's one of the things I'm, yeah, I tend to average six and a half to seven. So I keep trying to get to the, to, to the that golden eight hours. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And look, you, you've really been an absolute joy, Neil. I'm, I'm sure the listeners will take a lot away from this conversation. And how can people find you, follow you, connect with you, like to maybe follow up on this conversation with you? Well, many ways, as long as you could spell Neil Malarkey. <laughs> so uh, hopefully it'll be on the, your title of this. There's, uh, my Instagram and Twitter are both at Neil Malarkey, uh, N-E-I-L-M-U-L-L-A-R-K-E-Y. There's neilmalarkey.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. The Comedy Store Players, comedystoreplayers.com. We play every Wednesday, every Sunday in London at the Comedy Store. If you if those are tricky, then um, my uh, I have a, another website called Improv Your Biz. Improv Your then the whole word Your Biz B I Z. So come find me. What what I like about what I'm doing is that I get to meet all sorts of different people in all sorts of organisations across the world, and all of this resonates. Whatever the culture they come from, in terms of the sector they work in or the country they come from. It's all shared. I found this very much so. People want to tell their story, might be a bit nervous of telling it. And, and improv has an international cross-cultural appeal. Beautiful. Neil, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Keep in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Hi there, Gary Turner wrapping up this awesome podcast with Neil Malarkey. I just took so many things away from this discussion and I hope that you did too. I'm just going to share a few of those key reflections for me in case they are resonate or are helpful for you, the listener. Um, first of all, it's the importance of listening within improvisation that I think is just so key. Uh, Neil speaks to the fact that you have to listen to your fellow player, treat he, what he or she says as an offer or a gift and try and take that, add to it, and give it back. Key point here, you don't have to agree with them. I think there's just such a powerful message here from Neil that rather than needing to be seen to be right or having to have the perfect solution or answer, how about we just go with it, go with the flow a little bit more often. You know, we don't have to agree with people, but to build on each other's thinking or reflections or thoughts rather than having to be right, I think is a huge step forward towards us innovating and being more creative together on a collaborative basis. I have multiple examples of where I've offered something and it's been shut down, or indeed I've done the same, where you know in our own head we're already telling ourselves that we know the answer, 
and that we don't treat what someone's saying to us as that gift or as an offer to be built upon. Does that resonate with you? Would you challenge that? I'd love to hear from you. I also enjoyed Neil speaking about the fact that during improvisation, often they are caught, by, caught on the caught from sorry the metaphorical high wire. They've either been caught by their fellow players or by the audience's tolerance. And there's something there around trusting themselves, but also trusting each other. How trusting is it within your work environment or maybe even your personal life? And I've read many much on the trust over the last years. And it's one of those deeply human traits that actually we give trust to each other and we also receive it. So it's actually one of these reciprocal um, humanistic traits. I'd love to know whether that resonates with you. I also enjoyed Neil speaking about the fact that despite it seeing like it's pure improvisation on stage when he and his team are on stage at the Comedy Store Players, he says certain things have to be organised, like when we get on the stage, um, there's going to be some gags, uh, but he said they don't know what the audience is going to give them. So it really is this fundamentally in the moment, beautiful human connection. Yes, they do know they'll have someone on the door. Yes, they do know they've got a building surrounding them when they might have a break. But outside of that, everything else is in the flow. And I feel that this really speaks to what David Marquet, who joined me on episode seven of the podcast, spoke to, which he said that structure creates freedom. So we're not saying that we need rigid structure. We need hierarchical structures that keep people tight in boxes. But we need enough safety and structure that it allows people to push the edges, push the envelope, um, and therefore really stretch our thinking and stretch our collaboration. That, that really, really resonated with me as a huge topic. And then the final one for me that I'd like to share is that Neil spoke to, to be a good improviser, you have to step past the fear of being seen as mad, bad, or wrong. So in essence, if we're going to live in the moment, be more flow, live in that flow state, be a bit more intuitive, uh, be a bit more creative and not have to have a perfectly formed answer, we've just got to trust ourselves more. And we've got to get, get, get beyond that ego, get beyond that, that voice in our head telling us not to do something. Now, we're not saying to be completely reckless here, but trust your gut a bit more, trust your heart a bit more. And I'd love to see what came up for you if you did do that over a seven or 14 day period. So again, I've been your podcast host, Gary Turner. If there's, you'd like to have a conversation, that'd be great. I'd like to speak with you or indeed, please follow up with Neil. You can find his contact details in the show notes. And in the meantime, this is Value Through Vulnerability. It's a podcast dedicated to put the human back into humanity. And you can find out more about me at thelisteningorganization.co.uk. And until next time, thank you so much for joining us.